When we don't know how to love someone, we must look to Jesus Christ, who is the perfect model of love. We're called to love like Jesus loves, because that's how people will know we are followers of Christ. While our circumstances are different from what the disciples experienced, the difficulties we face are similar. Our world is less tolerant of our faith. Our religious liberties seem to be vanishing, and it's easy for us to get sideways with other Christ followers. Brothers and sisters, we need each other more than ever. Welcome to On Mission, the preaching ministry of Edgewood Baptist Church in Rock Island. When we gather together, we meet on 38th Street. And when we're scattered, we strive to live on mission all over the Quad Cities area. Listen now to part two of Love Like Jesus Loves. So Jesus is our model and he's our motivation. We're to express love for one another to the extent that Jesus loves each of us. Jesus repeats this for emphasis over in John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's ponder how this chapter begins. Jesus does the dirty work of a servant. He grabs a towel and a basin And he washes the foul feet of his disciples. Would you notice, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus could have just quickly wiped off their feet But that phrase, to the end, means he loved them to the outermost. So what did he do? He modeled what love looks like by rising from the table, laying aside his outer garments, taking a towel, pouring water into a basin, washing 24 feet, and drying them with the towel. And according to verses 14 and 15, this then is the model of the kind of love the followers of Jesus are to demonstrate to and for one another. We read there, verses 14 and 15, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So the newness of the command is not because it's novel, but it's because of its very nature. We're to love as Jesus loves. What does that love look like? It means that we serve one another. Number three, manifestation through love. When we love like Jesus, this then becomes a strong witness to the world. Verse 35, by this, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not our preferences. It's not our politics. It's not even our principles that will convince people that we follow Christ. The love we manifest for one another is the strongest testimony of the truth we claim to believe. The 11 disciples would survive and thrive only as they obeyed this mandate to love. Now, in order for us to truly love one another, we must recognize love is not so much an emotion. It's an active emulation of the one who first loved us. It has nothing to do 
with self-fulfillment, everything to do with self-sacrifice. That phrase, all people, refers to a totality. People will perceive we are disciples of Jesus only when they see us loving each other as Jesus loves. I'm reminded of a song from the 60s, which I won't sing for you. But you probably know it. They'll know we are Christians by our love. We'll work with one another. We'll work side by side. Yeah, they'll know we are Christians by our love. So the love we have for one another should lead people to immediately think the love that the Lord has for us. So here's some questions. The questions are easy to ask. They're hard to answer. Do people know that you're a Christian by the way you love other Christians? Can people tell you are a disciple by how devoted you are to fellow followers of Christ? Let me get at that a different way. Is there a believer who really bothers you? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> yeah, my guess is there is, and there's probably more than one who bug you. Do you find it difficult to love those who are difficult? Listen, we're commanded to love and not hate on one another. But this might be good news for you. You don't necessarily need to like the person or even hang out with them, but you're commanded to love them. Ponder 1 John 2.11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So in the midst of all the conflict, and the confusion, and the anger, and the vitriol in our culture right now. Let's not let the donkey and the elephant divide what the lamb has done for us on the cross. So perhaps you can relate to this statement, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, oh, that's a different story, right? You know, I was pondering the uh, disciples. Like, what was it like to be part of that group of 12? It had to be hard. I mean, Peter was not easy to be around, right? He's always talking. He had this brash personality that probably irritated others on the team. I wonder how Peter's brother felt, Andrew. I mean, Peter, James, and John got all this extra time with Jesus. Andrew didn't. We do know the other disciples got jealous when James and John angled for the top spots in the cabinet. And I can't imagine the tension between Simon and Matthew. Who was Simon? The zealot. Who was Matthew? His background was the tax collector. So Simon was part of a radical political party, the Zealots. They used force to achieve their goal. What was their goal? Liberating Israel from Roman rule. Matthew worked for Rome. 
He collected taxes from the Israelites, lining his own pockets in the process. Listen, they had natural conflict because of their politics, but they had Christ in common. And they were learning how to love one another just as Jesus loved each of them. Tertullian lived in the third century when opposition to Christianity was super intense. Listen to what he wrote about how pagans viewed Christians. Quote, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. Here's the brand. See, they say, how they love one another. How they're even ready to die for one another. One heathen said this about Christians, they love one another almost before they know one another. George Whitfield and Charles Wesley had significant theological differences. They had huge conflict, major heated conversations. One day a friend of Whitfield's asked him and he said, do you think we, when we get to heaven, shall see John Wesley there? Whitfield quickly answered, no. I don't think we shall. Well, his friend was delighted with the answer until Whitfield continued. I believe Mr. John Wesley will have a place so near the throne of God that such poor creatures as you and I will be so far off as to be hardly able to see him. Whitfield and Wesley went at it. They strongly disagreed. Whitfield loved Wesley, listen, even though he was convinced he was wrong. Friends, he lived out this truth. A disciple is one who loves like Jesus loves. I'm reminded of the famous line from Augustine. Pastor Brown often quoted this and he lived and ministered this way. In essentials, unity In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And so let me circle back around and ask the question a different way. Is there enough evidence in your life of love for fellow believers for someone to conclude that you must be a disciple of Jesus? And so let's live out the mandate to love. Let's follow the model of love and then let's demonstrate and manifest that love in practical ways. We're going to transition now. We're continuing to speak of love. The Bible makes it clear that we're to love like Jesus loves, which means we're to love the little, the least, and the lost. And I should have done this last night. I did mention it at 9 o'clock, but I want to mention it now. As we transition now, I'm going to be talking about the sanctity of life. And so parents, if you have younger children and you don't think they're ready to hear this, I just, uh, just feel free to step out or feel free to stay. I just didn't want you to get blindsided. So we're to love the little, the least, and the lost. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So recently, the Guardian newspaper, that's out of the UK, they ran a story exploring the greatest photo of the 20th century. We think about it, they could have chosen a lot of things. That's 100 years of history. I mean, maybe they could have chosen something from politics or sports. Maybe an action shot from one of our world wars. Maybe man walking on the moon. There was none of those. According to them, the greatest picture in the 20th century was a picture of a pre-born baby in the womb. The Guardian chose a stunning photo from the April 1965 edition of Life magazine, which featured an 18-week fetus on its cover. This caused a worldwide sensation. This particular issue became a spectacular success, becoming the fastest-selling copy in Life magazine's entire history. In full color, crystal clear detail, the picture shows an unborn child in its amniotic sac, vulnerable yet serene. Its eyes are closed, its tiny, perfectly formed fists are clutched to its chest. Early in the week when I uh, looked at that picture, I didn't notice something. I did notice later in the week, down here at the bottom left, in white, it says, drama of life before birth. So since the landmark Supreme Court decision handed down on January 22nd, 1973, I'm pausing here on purpose so that we catch the gravity of what I'm about to say. An estimated 62 million children in America have lost their lives through abortion. That's the combined population of 26 states. According to Life News, just weeks into our new year, over one million babies have already been aborted across the globe, making abortion the number one cause of death, outranking heart disease and cancer. So, Let me say three things. Number one, as a church, we're not going to cave on biblical truth. Our aim is not to be politically correct, but to be biblically correct. So we're going to stand on God's word and we're going to teach what the Bible says on all topics it teaches on. That Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That God is the creator. That marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And that life begins at conception. And it's time for churches to speak out and to speak out to those who are confused and ensnared. Let me quick, be quick to say we're not going to clobber sinners. Well, let's remember that the gospel is for sinners, which means it's for me and it's for you. It's for each one of us. And it's okay for us to be incensed about evil, but let's make sure that we're always extending love. We're always looking for ways to extend the gospel of grace to people. Number three, 
we're committed to follow Jesus Christ so we don't cave into sin or clobber people. John 1.14 says this about Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. We see that lived out in John chapter 8 when the woman who was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. Jesus gave her grace. He said, neither do I condemn you. But he also spoke truth. And he said to her, go and sin no more. And so we're called to minister the truth and do so with grace. You know, we learned last week, truth spoken in love actually leads to forgiveness and freedom. Jesus said in John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. Four verses later, verse 36, so if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Proverbs 14, 25, a truthful witness saves lives but the one who breathes out lies is deceitful. So let's briefly look, just for a couple minutes, at Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah writing, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the Nation. So this passage, along with so many others, establishes the sanctity of human life. This is what God's word says about life in the womb. Now, individuals will have their opinions. Organizations will offer their expertise. Politicians will differ about the preborn. But this is what God says. So let's make some observations. The word before is used twice. It moves us back in time from the point of conception to sometime in eternity past. The word I is used four times, indicating that God not only is the one speaking, but he is the one at work in the womb. And thirdly, the word you is used five different times. Now, this shows that what's in the womb is a person. It's not a blob. It's not a bunch of cells. And so this leads us right into the first truth. The pre-born are people. To borrow a line from Dr. Seuss, a person's a person no matter how small. Verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb. Before Jeremiah was even conceived, God knew him as a person. The word formed is the Hebrew word used to describe the creative process that a potter goes through as he or she takes clay and shapes it into a mold. It means to squeeze into a predetermined shape. It's also the same word found in Genesis 2-7 where we read the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Now the fact that preborn are people is no small point. Scott Cox points out that the first thing any society does if it's going to mistreat a particular class of people is to dehumanize them. Sadly, wrongly, sinfully, some theologians in the 19th century espoused the idea that blacks had no soul. Why'd they do that? In order to justify slavery. So how much easier is it for our society today to do this 
when the voice and even the form of those who are being dehumanized and mistreated cannot be heard or seen because their cries are silent. And that's why ultrasounds and pictures of the preborn in the womb are so powerful. Secondly, the preborn are pre-known. The next phrase, I knew you. The word know in Hebrew speaks of a personal, intimate knowledge. It was used of Adam knowing Eve. The idea is God has a close, personal commitment, an intimate relationship with every person he creates. Watch this, even before he creates him or her. So if we are known to God even before he began his creative work, how much more are we known after conception? Number three, the preborn are prized. Look at the next clause. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That word is used of setting someone or something apart for special and specific use. Even before Jeremiah was born, he was set apart for a special task. And number four, the preborn have a purpose. <laughs> Last part of verse five I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah had a job to do, and so do you. Would you note that God's word is not just for one group of people, it's for the nations. By the way, the missions committee recommended the deacons just approved our newest GO team partners, Blake and Anna Patterson. You'll be hearing more about them. Anna's the daughter of Edgewood members Matt and Laura Baker. They leave this week to serve in Southeast Asia. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David recounts how God created him with purpose. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has the length of our days all figured out. And when God creates, he does so with purpose. He has plans and he has purposes for the pre-born as well. Uh, Three quick additional thoughts. The exalted lordship of Jesus Christ must lead us to expressions of love and to an ethic of life. Number two, you and I are called to love our neighbors. Among those who are our neighbors are those who are nestled in their mother's wombs. And thirdly, there's no appreciable difference between a preborn baby and a newborn except location. When you think about it, we're all just grown-up embryos. Here are some ways we can put this message into practice. One, manifest love by standing up for life. As you have opportunity, share God's view of life in the womb with people. Post pro-life status updates and provide counsel to people who are in crisis. Related to this, if more men would stand up and choose life, there would be a lot fewer abortions. Two, support the ministry of pregnancy resources. To learn more about this life-affirming ministry, go to qcpregnancypartners.org. Three, if you've had an abortion or are in need of love, grace, and healing, consider joining a post-abortion Bible study. Call Pregnancy Resources at 309-797-3636 for more information. As we wrap up today, consider 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, 
that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. He commands us to believe in his finished work on the cross, and he commands us to love one another. Thanks for joining us for On Mission. If you'd like to hear more messages like this one, go to edgewoodbaptist.net or download our free mobile app on the Apple App Store or Google Play by searching for Edgewood QC. If you don't have a church family, we'd love to have you as a guest at one of Edgewood's three weekend services, Saturday at 5 or Sunday at 9 or 1045. We have a full children's program during both Sunday services. My name is Matt Williams, and I'm a member of Edgewood. Ethan Curry, also an Edgewood member, is serving as the producer of this program. We look forward to connecting with you again next weekend as we learn more about how to live on mission. Until then, go deep in God's Word and keep applying it to your world. On Mission is furnished by Edgewood Baptist in Rock Island, Illinois.